Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Sabrendu Patanayak of Duke University. Over the last several years, Sabrendu has literally trekked the Himalayas to do research on how to provide access to electricity for communities in hard-to-reach places. I'll ask Sabrendu about what policy and market factors might make it easier to expand energy access, and he'll help us understand how dynamics within these communities can affect the likelihood of small-scale electricity projects to succeed or fail. Stay with us. Sabrendu Patanayak, my former teacher and uh, former colleague uh, from Duke University, Sanford School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for joining us on Resources Radio. I am very excited to be uh, talking to you, Daniel. It's um, It's been a while since we've met, but what a better uh, topic to chat about. Absolutely. And um and I'm looking forward to to learning more about your work. And but one question I never, I don't think I asked you when when I was studying with you was how you ended up working on energy and environmental topics. Like what sort of drew you into the world of energy and the environment? So it's unlikely that there was any uh, one particular event, but I guess um, perhaps it was a set of things. I uh, in college I used to hike in the high Himalayas and. This is several days at a time with a group of 15, 16 people sort of living in the mountains there. It's so pristine and clean and clear. I must have had my Lorax moment somewhere up there thinking about <laughs> who who exactly speaks for the trees and and, and for the birds and, and the clean air and, and water. And around that time, I think the Grootland Commission Sustainable Development Report was coming out and it seemed like this was a deep cause. And miraculously enough, uh, economics had something to do uh, with it. Uh, and so I think my both intrinsic passion for economics and, and sort of love for the environment came together through environmental economics. And um, I would say the energy aspects weren't uh, weren't at the forefront initially. I was mostly studying clean water and clean air and um, biodiversity. And it's uh, till I had a child, I guess it it the whole climate change dimension sort of reared its head. Um, thinking about the world that I was going to be leaving him with, and and if I hadn't done my part, uh, then I would have failed him. So. I guess um, that's when energy issues became much more salient in my yeah. mind, at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. And as a new dad, I can uh, certainly identify with that feeling. And I think a lot of people um, have that motivation, at least in part. Right. I mean, I don't think we have to watch a dystopian movie to sort of get the get the message here, but it's it's pretty scary if we haven't done our part. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so let's let's get into the substance and talk about your work on um, energy access. So, um, so you've done lots of work on on energy access over the last several years, uh, and we're going to dive into some of it. But first, maybe just like a really naive question, uh, or in, hopefully this is intentionally naive. I guess we'll find out. Um, but uh, can you just give us a quick overview about you know why is energy access important and uh, in particular, how does access to electricity and clean cooking, you know, af- affect people's lives? 
Sure. Um, I mean, I think I, I do a lot of seminars on the topic and the typical motivation is just, just think of how you started your day today, Daniel. I mean, I think you probably flipped on a switch before you got that first cup of coffee. And if you're not a coffee drinker, tea or whatever it is, and, yes. and, and that got you going, right? And compared to that, there, there are about a billion people, actually 3 billion, who have to light a fire and cook something and then get going. And, and this is problematic in a couple of ways, at least. But um, I think economists try to lump this into sort of equity and equality issues and efficiency issues. So the, yeah. the equality aspect is just right there. It's the fact that a billion people around the world don't have electricity and maybe another two billion don't have reliable electricity. That's about half the world that just doesn't have that ability to switch on a switch in the morning and get that cup of coffee, right? So this is a justice issue. This is a distributional issue or a humanitarian issue. On the other side, and that would be good enough in itself, but on the other side, what they are doing to get by, their main source of energy is uh, is a biomass product, so a piece of wood or some dung or leaves. And burning that causes all kinds of problems. It causes health problems. It causes resource degradation because this is not coming in nice bundles of wood. It causes emissions, and that emission affects you and me here. So there are externalities from the act of consuming or using dirty energy around the world. Externalities are <laughs> the entry point for most economists as to why someone should be intervening and and uh, trying to get the system to be using less of this. So right. electricity and clean cooking would not only deliver uh, environmental justice types of outcomes, but it would also make things more efficient around the world in many right. ways. Yeah, yeah. And so, so let's talk a little bit more in in general terms about energy access, and then dive into some depth with with your work in Nepal in particular. Sure. So there, there are kind of two stories around energy access that that were emerging when I was looking at the data on on this mm -hmm. topic, mm -hmm. um, and one of them is, is a pretty positive story. So right, if you look at data from the IEA. There's been lots of progress on uh, increasing energy access over the last few decades. So, for example, the percentage of people uh, with access to electricity in India grew from 43% in the year 2000 to 87% in 2017. And this is, you know, off of a base of over a billion people. So, um, so you know, really big progress. There's been really big progress in China over the last several decades. Um, so we're going to talk about the downsides in a minute. But first, can you just speak to the the successes in energy access and and what has driven them over the last uh, you know several decades. Sure. So let me start out by saying that looking at the policy macro context is that's not really my strong suite. And uh -huh. even in this field, people specialize in this and that, and I tend to specialize more at what uh, at the household consumer demand level and. And, and furthermore, at what local supply chains look like. But of course, I've been thinking and worrying about this for long enough that I can hopefully give you a credible story here. So, yeah. so, so the first thing is, uh, naturally, it's how much uh, countries have prioritized this issue. I mean, how salient has it been to the electoral politics where uh, politicians 
offer to solve this problem and and you talked about india but really china is is the shining study here and then many of the other middle income countries or the brics i would say uh, russia and 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 in and you know brazil and others and so it's how much priority they give and by that it means you know what sort of policies do they put in place and i think the world bank um has has a report that it puts out every couple of years they are called uh, the rise reports it's regulatory indicators for sustainable energy right so okay. that would roughly tell you that um yes there are policies that are relevant for energy access there are policies that are relevant for energy efficiency which is what more the us focuses on and then there's policies relevant for renewable energies this is also something that the us focuses but let's just pick the energy access part the electrification and here you could see that the policies have to do broadly in sort of three groupings is there an electrification plan and how well is it being tracked okay mm-hmm. number one number two is there a framework for uh incorporating many grids and sort of the non grid heavy options um for bringing this in okay so um standalone systems not just the, the big grid slowly like a behemoth sort of crawling across the landscape right. so if that's in place and thirdly um how seriously has the country's policies dealt with consumer affordability so the places that don't have uh, that are energy poor or are lacking energy tend to be uh, poor <laughs> in in different ways and so affordability tends to be a big issue and and the different sort of finance schemes that countries are able to put together has a lot to do with that um and sorry i forget that there is also a fourth piece and it's it's uh, about how well utilities are monitored and how transparent they are with uh, with their accounting and if they're credit worthy etc so that's mm-hmm. at the policy level and i've done some work much more macro in fact it's an rff working paper right now and in review um, that that has sort of looked only at uh solar home solar systems and try to figure out what the enabling environment is for success in that field and by that enabling environment i'm thinking uh a set of market related factors such as uh, supply chain right a set of finance factors such as different financing schemes we already touched on regulation that was one of them but also sort of program level implementation factors and you know so as you can see it's a real big bundle of things it's no one one um issue that's rising to the top right yeah and so a complex i could i could just keep going but i know <laughs> i know you want to wrap this at some point yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean you know i i always wish i could spend more time with our guests but we um we do have to stop at some point so yeah. um so i won't i won't dwell on more sort of big picture items but i but i will throw out just a few more stats to to give listeners a, a sense of the scale mm-hmm. and maybe geographical distribution of energy access challenges so you mentioned earlier that there are you know roughly 1 billion people who lack access to to any electricity mm-hmm. um and when you look most of that is in asia and sub-saharan africa so we have about 170 million people in india 
about 180 million people in other parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the really, really big chunk of folks is in sub-Saharan Africa, where mm-hmm. we have roughly 600 million people uh, without access to, to energy. And this is from IEA data. Um, so, so that's kind of the big picture framing. Um, but, but let's dip, dive down into your work and, um, and talk about Nepal in particular, um, or, you know, feel free, please, to, to bring in other examples as you see fit. So um, you've been working in Nepal. Um, you've done a lot of work on providing electricity through something called micro hydro systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of our listeners can probably imagine what a micro hydro system is. But can you uh, give us a brief description of, uh, of what those systems look like and how they work? Yeah, so I think I started uh, uh, today's discussion by reminding you that what got me into the environment was hiking in the high Himalayas. And and one of the uh, outstanding features of that setting is these fast-flowing streams and rivers, right? And to an engineer, that's uh, (laughs) uncontained energy, right? So if you can actually trap it and use gravity to sort of propel a turbine, you could... Uh, that's essentially what a microgrid is, a hydro, micro-hydro microgrid, right? So you can get about two, 300 people electricity because this stream is being sort of channeled into a turbine that's being, and that's firing up two, 300 households, a community plus maybe two communities for three, four hours a day. Um, so a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the evening, and it's usually mountainous, rugged terrain, fast-flowing rivers, um, and that's that's what it looks like. At the face of it, it sounds like an engineering marvel, and, and it's really about engineering. But I think as social scientists and those who do policy work, you realize that it's much more than engineering. Um, right. To have the system functioning, to have its uh, repa- parts being repaired, and you need people to get along with each other, to collect money, to employ a operator and, you know, all of that. And that's sort of underrated. That's exactly what we're trying to study. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit more about those sort of social networks and how they, uh, I don't know, maybe give us an example of uh, of how a, a social system uh, can help enable or potentially destabilize uh, some some engineering project like a micro hydro mini grid? Right. So I think at some level, it's it's all the old adages in community managed systems. Um, as long as the community is not too big um, and the community is reasonably homogeneous. So this last winter, I was in Nepal looking at the system and um, the Gurung, I don't know what to call them, a tribe, I guess, a social sub, it's a caste system, the, the Gurung people get along with each other and they have pride in their system. And mm-hmm. as long as there are not ma- too many non-Gurungs, they are willing to help each other out. <laughs> so so homogeneity helps, uh, the size of the community helps. And some history of uh, having done things together, of community projects helps. But minus all those things, um, you have trouble. So if the community is fractionalized, it's too big, it has never really got together to do community projects, then that's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we sort of, that's our hypothesis at least so far. Mm-hmm. And we're testing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, it sort of plays into the next question that I was thinking about, which was, um, you know, this question of scale and mm-hmm. at what point do different scales of technology make sense? So I was listening to a podcast, uh, another podcast you did, and you're 
you know, you're a, you're a man of the world, you're a podcaster of the world. <laughs> and in that podcast, you said, you use the phrase small is beautiful when referring to these systems. And that's, you know, that's different from how we often think about electricity systems. And, you know, we think about the value of having large centralized uh, uh, energy where you can pull electricity from from wide different, uh, wide geographical areas. So for regions that are looking to expand access to the grid, how do you think about the trade-offs for when small is better versus when big is better? Yeah, so I think I might come back to this uh, further along and feel free to ask me to expand if we have time. But it's helpful to remember that in the U.S., you often, uh, the countryside was... uh, uh, got electricity through small-scale systems to start with uh, mm. before we sort of went big. And and I would say that there is a place and time for everything. And right now, if, uh, Daniel, one day you will get to to one of these mountains and you'll realize how hard it is to get there, yeah. let alone how hard it is to bring electricity to these places, right, on a grid to to have a cable line. So if it's remote, if it's rural, and if it's hard to get to, I think these non-grid solutions have to be uh, perhaps the only thing, right? We started out today's uh, conversation with imagining life without light. So we shouldn't be imagining that life without light. And if we need to get, people are still living in these remote, rural, hard to get places. So off-grid is going to be perhaps the only option there. And especially when you have limited finance. So remote, rural, hard to reach places without access to um, big chunks of investment, limited finances. That's sort of the short run answer to when these will work. I think there is also, if you take the truly ecological, environmental lens, perhaps a long run answer that right now, some of the electrification that's happening in the world is happening on the back of coal. Okay, mm-hmm. and coal is neither sustainable nor very or nor very clean as as uh, sort of implemented around the world mostly. Yeah, and so I think from a long term clean sustainable energy solution, some of these uh, hydro renewable solutions are also part of it, right? So I think till we get to clean beautiful coal <laughs> or or um, <laughs> wind and 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 hydro on a large scale uh, off-grid solar is going to be a, a very important player to solve some of those challenges that i sort of introduced at the beginning yeah 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 so you mentioned uh investment and different scales of investment um for the small communities that you're looking at whether in whether if they're in the himalayas or or maybe other parts of the world that are looking for access to electricity, what are the sort of options that they have uh, to to gather investment um, for for these sort of smaller scale projects? Are they, you know, financed by the communities themselves? Are are governments coming in with grants? Are there international organizations helping out? Kind of what's the landscape there? I for for most parts, it's some mix of all those things that you mentioned, uh, Daniel. I don't think. Um... It's uh, it's only one. It's it's actually some mixed bag of all those things that you listed, and that's yeah. that's really that's really what's happening. And I wish I knew which one of them is more successful than the others. But you know that's the reason for our research. We're sort of exploring different business models. Um, I I can expand on that in a second. Um, yeah, please do. So 
you know, it's true that some mix of private investment and stable policies uh, are needed. And at some level, you know, it's always wise to quote some dead famous economist like <laughs> Schumpeter. And sure. So there is a place and time for everything, right? So I think different things work in different places. And to say that it's private finance that is of this kind and, and not some of the social finance or public investments is perhaps a mistake. Um, I think we should be looking at these systems more through sort of uh, general general reform principles, not really saying it's private or public. Um, those labels don't really mean much in these settings. Mm -hmm. And so those principles are really, is there competition? Okay, so that's first. So when the private comes in and there is public, I think there is a healthy competition between the two. If it's only one, then the other will dominate. Mm -hmm. Second is, is there any accountability? Um, is there a way for the consumer to uh, signal back to to the provider that what they're doing is not right or not good or low quality? Okay, yeah. either by they lose the elections or their company is kicked out. It has to be, there's got to be some accountability. Mm -hmm. Failing that accountability, we should have some system of evaluation and monitoring. So where there is difficulty in accountability, you need third party monitoring of some kind to sort of say, this is not right or this is good. And ultimately, of course, I think we have to sort of remember, I think you might remember this from uh, one of our lectures in class many moons ago, <laughs> um, that public services are, have a different flavor than than private commodities, right? So as much as electricity is a private commodity, we've talked about its public value. And so with public services, I think there's got to be some alignment of the missions and motives of the organizations that's providing it. And 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 that, you know, puts a little bit of a question mark on all the emphasis on sort of the private investments being the solution, because private investments uh, come with a few risks associated with them. Yeah. And And this has sort of lent itself to thinking about decentralized off-grid because they have many of these boxes where there is low, uh, there's ground level accountability in, in these small systems. You can actually, it's actually community run so that the leader sits in the community and gets voted out if there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And there's direct monitoring because the community monitors. There's some level of competition, not a lot, um, but there is a fairly high level of alignment of mission and motives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask about that. Um, well, those interrelated issues of um, of accountability and monitoring. So, so for are there examples out there? Are there many examples out there where both accountability and monitoring are taking place at the local level? Because um, I was thinking about if you if you want to do monitoring for you know many many projects scattered in many different places and small communities, right? That would be I, I imagine that would be fairly hard to centralize. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about that? So I think you. That's exactly the right phrase that you use. The, the moment you think of some sort of centralized audit system, this is this is difficult, right? Yeah. So the fact that we're thinking of decentralized mini grids, micro hydro, name them, it's those are supposed to be self sufficient, right? So they are actually watching each other. It's not like an external regulator is coming and seeing if they're delivering. Yeah. Yeah. 
And But even in that world, there are failing off-grid systems and succeeding off-grid systems. And in fact, that is the, the point of our research in Nepal. Like, wh why have some succeeded and others have failed? And I don't want to get too carried away with the three site visits we did, one to a lousy site and one to a good site. But there was already some evidence that the failing one didn't have clear accounting. The, there was lack of trust in the community. They weren't reporting what they were doing with their finances, right? And and the one that was succeeding, all those things were happening, and and which which led to this hypothesis that maybe some of this is going on. And so our goal right now is to sort of get data from 100, 200, 300 of these systems and see if there's a more general statistical pattern. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, are are and how are you going to carry that out? Are you going to be trekking more uh, in the Himalayas? Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, why do you think I pick pick that place? As you get older, <laughs> you got to sort of combine work and and uh, activity. Yeah. So yes, uh, we are. But jokes aside, I think we are launching a mammoth uh, survey. We've got some seed grant from within Duke, and we are looking for external funding and combining as much uh, GIS work as we could do to sort of uh, do this uh, system by system across multiple systems, right? Rather than right. these anecdotal case studies, um, and hopefully. There'll be some uh, beautiful tracks and, and nice pictures also somewhere in there. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we'll look forward to kind of hearing back maybe in, in a year or two. Sure. Um, once you have Absolutely. that bigger end um, and see what you're finding. And uh, and this can't, I can't help but remember the a tr one trip I took to the sort of foothills of the Himalayas in China, mm -hmm. a place called Tiger Leaping Gorge, mm -hmm. um, which is this epically vast gorge. I think it's the headwaters of the Yangtze River mm -hmm. and um, a really beautiful place, a really remote place um, where they did actually have electricity. And I think it was a grid a large grid system that was providing it. But this is China. It's sort of a different model. China is always uh, an exceptional story, and uh, we should all remember that. But the other thing your listeners should probably be aware of is the foothills of the Himalayas are often about 10,000 feet. So yeah. <laughs> it, life is quite challenging in those parts, and, and the grid is not reaching there anytime soon. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you, Sabrina, so much for telling us about this and uh, you know sharing some of your experiences uh, working in Nepal and elsewhere. We're going to close it out with a segment that we call Top of the Stack. And this is, okay. uh, we ask everybody this question, and uh, we're going to ask you what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So mm -hmm. something that you've read or watched or heard recently that you enjoyed uh, or that you thought was interesting related to the environment or energy that you thought are um, listeners might uh, might enjoy. And I'm going to recommend uh, a video uh, that I just watched uh, last week on YouTube. It's incredibly popular, so you may have heard of it already. Mm -hmm. um, it's got over like 60 or 70 million views at this point. It's a song called Earth by mm -hmm. an artist uh, named Lil Dicky, who mm -hmm. I had never heard before. Okay, uh, It's a ridiculous uh, video. Uh, it's really fun. It's quite uh, vulgar, uh -huh. uh, but it's really, really warm-hearted, uh, uh -huh. and it's a song about the Earth and its importance and the species on the Earth. There are cameos from many famous singers and actors like Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and uh, even Joel Embiid, the basketball player, makes a cameo. Um, so it's not something that I would recommend for you know policy advice or uh -huh. you know learning the the nooks and crannies of uh, energy and environmental. Um, policy but it's really fun uh, it's got a couple good laughs in it and um and i think pretty much everyone would enjoy it so check it out earth by lil dicky absolutely we'll do that yeah <laughs> how about you Sabrina? 
Um, so the the problem with uh, being academics is that you tend to read too much all the time, right? And <laughs> I, I would like to say that I'm reading only uh, really serious tropes and books out there, but probably just reading lots and lots of complaining emails from students and uh, administrators <laughs> about things that I haven't done for them. So I'm just going to recommend a few things that are not book length, but really short. Um, just uh, maybe a couple of things. One is, there is an article in Foreign Affairs in, say, 2015, uh, by Morgan Bazilian. Yeah, that's his yeah. name, Bazilian. Mm -hmm. He was yeah. an energy lead energy economist at the World Bank and now has moved to Colorado. Yeah. It's called Power to the People. Um it's it's a really nice introduction to all these things that I just mentioned. Um short and you can actually listen to it. Uh, strangely enough foreign affairs uh, found that article to be so popular that they have a voiceover on it and you can listen to it in about 20 minutes. Um there's, there's, uh, next is a cluster of uh, short articles on de-risking off-grid that UNDP and the ETH Zurich have produced. Um, I think that's a, that's a helpful introduction. Uh, just like the World Bank RISE reports, they, they've had one in 2018, one in 2016. So RISE again stands for Regulatory indicator scorecard, something. I forget. I, I think it's a regulatory indicators for sustainable energy. Sustainable energy, right? But they end end up letting you get a scorecard at the end of it. That's mm -hmm. why I remember. And then finally, so we've got general introduction. We've got policies, and I think the sustainable energy for all, or SE for all, puts out these finance reports um, every couple of years. And there's been one in 2017 and 2018. Um, if your listeners have time, just scanning the executive summaries, which are about a page and a half or two pages, is a good introduction to all of this material. Yeah. But no long books or Justin Bieber from me. Sorry. <laughs> well, we have, I think we've, we've spanned the gamut of uh, recommendations from Justin Bieber to long books to, uh, yeah. to magazine articles. So we've got uh, something and from to Lorax, today. Yeah. yeah. And to Lorax, right. Yeah. So um, great. Thank you so much, Sambrandu, for, for coming on and talking to us. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing updates on your research in the future. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel, for asking me. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.